0: Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. Hi, welcome to Privacy Piracy, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and live on the audio streaming at KUCI.org. I'm Lloyd, I'm the engineer for this show, and co-host with Mari, and uh, if you don't know our host, let me tell you a little bit about her, she's a local attorney and privacy consultant. She's the author of several books, including her two new books, Safeguard Your Identity, and From, Victor to Vic- From Victim to Victor. <laughs> Uh, It's a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft with a CV. She's testified many times in the California legislature and the U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS uh, special last year, and they're still airing it sometimes. And it's called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. She's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows. To learn more, please visit www.identitytheft.org. So let's get started with a great show tonight. Hi, Mary.
1: Hi, we do have a great show, and we're so lucky that we have Lisa Dean, who's coming to us all the way from the East Coast, and she is the Senior Privacy Officer for the, for the Transportation Security Administration. She was uh, brought over there and appointed in March of, 9th of 2004. And Lisa is responsible for privacy compliance for the agency. Now, that's a real tough area because we're trying to have a balance between security and privacy. Her responsibilities encompass assuring the technologies used by the TSA to protect the United States and also not to erode the privacy protections that that she has to use with regard to use collection and disclosure of personal and department information. And the Privacy Office also formulates and communicates official TSA privacy policies to employees and to the public. By the way, they have a very good website at tsa.gov that you can even learn more. She works closely with stakeholders from the privacy adv- advocacy community to keep them informed of progress on the Transportation Security Administration programs, and she addresses privacy concerns and incorporates them into the process of privacy protection. And she also works with people overseas because they have acquisition, use, and dissemination of personal information about foreign uh, citizens as well. And so she has to deal with all those emergency uh, issues and the emerging technologies and agency programs. It's It's a really tough job. Um I really honor all that she's doing because she she has a great background in privacy, as a matter of fact. Before joining the Department of Homeland Security with the TSA, Lisa served as the Washington Policy Representative for the Electronic Frontier, Frontier Foundation. And remember, we had um, Lee Tian who came from the EFF,
2: right.
1: and joined us. And she also served as Vice President for Technology Policy and Privacy at the Free Congress Foundation, where she was responsible for the organization's early involvement in the privacy movement so that she could educate and influence the public and lawmakers on privacy issues that are so fundamental to our uh, traditional American values. So she comes with a a great deal of experience and expertise and and know-how, and we are so lucky to have you. Lisa, are you there all the way on the East Coast? I am
3: mari. Thank you so much. You have a great radio program and i'm I'm happy to be a part of it.
1: Well, thank you you know there's so much going on that we're hearing all the time with this balance of security and privacy so you're you're in the hot seat i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> all
3: the time we're we're of all the components within homeland security i think t s a probably is the the most um out front and We probably have the most um uh, to do with the public and and contact with the public, so right. um, we hear we hear a lot of uh, complaints and compliments, both.
1: Right now, and we know that you're really trying to do a good job. So I'm very glad that you're the one in there in this position.
3: Well, thank
2: you. Let's
1: let's talk about something that people don't really understand. You know, they read in the newspaper, but they don't get it, or they get stopped. You know, when they're trying to get on the airplane, and they don't really understand. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about what this no-fly list is all about?
3: Yeah, that, I'm glad you asked that question um, because the no-fly list is a common um, misconception. When people call us or they write us, they say, well, I was just at the airport and I couldn't use the kiosk so I couldn't use curbside check-in um, and I had to go to the ticket counter in order to get my boarding pass and I was told that I'm on the no-fly list. Well, the no-fly list means that you're not going to fly. There's there is um, there's the no-fly list, and then there's the selectee list. No-fly means, um, as I said, you're not going to board a plane. The selectee list is what most people are talking about when they write or call. Um, it means that they have a name similarity to someone on that selectee list, that's prohibiting that person from using the kiosk or um, checking in in it or even printing out their boarding pass from home. So th- that's the difference between the two um, lists. And when people um, write in, they can easily, you know, they can get redressed. They can say, um, look, I'm not this person. Um, here is my information and, and TSA takes care of it. So I, I just want to make that clarification that no fly means you have um, A name similarity or for someone on the no-fly list is someone who has a direct connection to terrorism. They're not going to board a plane. Um, Whereas a selectee has a a name, someone who who is in selectee status means that there is some association, Um, though not as direct and and not as um, maybe as strong as someone on the no-fly.
1: Okay, so help me understand. Like Edward Kennedy was on the selective list, correct?
3: Mm-hmm. That's right. He had a name similarity to someone on the on the selective list.
1: Okay, and so I I have this neighbor who has a son who's 15 years old, and every time they want to get on the airplane with him, um, he gets called over, and he can't get on, and it takes you know a very long time for him to deal with it. He, he's a hockey player, and so he kind of flies all over to go to these <laughs> games. And they consistently lose his luggage. I mean, the whole family will go. There's, you know, they have a very Irish name, and you know, three kids and two two parents, and they fly all over. And poor Patrick, his stuff gets lost all the time, and he gets held up. And they have written um, to TSA, and they. Help me help him on how he can get redressed so that that doesn't happen, or is it possible for that not to happen? Um, Well, the luggage part I can't really address, but
3: I can address the fact that he has to undergo secondary screening or has trouble getting a boarding pass uh, whenever he flies. He should really um, either contact the TSA contact center, and I can give that number. It's um, 866-289-9673, Okay. Or uh, well, you can go to our website, which is www.tsa.gov, and download the passenger identity verification form. And and filling out that form, sending it to TSA, TSA can then look and compare that the information that he's provided. To what's on the list to dis- make the determination that the, he's not the same person and, and be able to clear off any misidentification
1: that way. Yeah, that's what his men did with the. Um, they went online and they got the form and they did do that, but he's still getting that problem. I'm just wondering, because I mean, what kinds of things are compared? Is it just name or do they look at birthday? Because this kid just turned 15 years old, and I, you know, and his. Location. I just wonder what kinds of um, – is it just the name that they look at? Um, now there are other identifiers, um, but it's a minimal amount of, of
3: personal data. It sometimes could just be the air carrier as well. Some air carriers have very updated systems, and they, they update them um, in accordance with um, our list, our cleared list. And, and anyone who flies who's had a problem in the past, because the list has been updated, um, with the carrier, then they don't have a problem anymore. So mm-hmm. it really sometimes depends on what carrier he's flying to.
1: So do they, um, can they get a letter from TSA that they can maybe bring to the airport or, or it, make sure that the, that the airport knows ahead of time when they're making their reservations so that they get clearance and they don't get held off? Is that we, a possibility?
3: We do generally send a letter. Um, when we've put someone on the cleared list and told them you should should no longer have the problem, um, and they they can take that uh, letter to the airport or um, when they go to check in, but um, until we get secure flight up and running um, and able to take care of these problems, I think people will the problem won't be handled 100 percent.
1: So let's go to that issue now. Why don't you explain to us what secure flight is and what, what been, how is that going to work for well? us?
3: Secure flight is a, is a passenger pre-screening um, program that TSA is developing and, and we've tested last year and, and we continue to, to work on it um, that will consolidate um, the process for pre-screening passengers that the air carriers currently conduct today. Um, different air carriers have different standards and different methods by which they pre-screen passengers. Um, what TSA wants to do is bring that in-house, take that function away from the carriers, consolidate it, and make it uh, more of a streamlined process. So when someone makes an airline reservation, we use a minimum number of data elements um, such as name and date of birth for example, and um, match those Match those uh, data elements against uh, consolidated government watch list that will return a score. Uh, well, I, I don't mean to say score because that that goes back to you know more more intensive scrutiny than than what we're really trying to say here. Um, it will return the result saying yes, this person has a ma- This person is a match or, it's, or he's not a match. Um, if he is a match, then we go through another process internally to clear up any match. And hopefully the passenger it, it, will never know. And so we'll clear him, and, and so he won't have that problem of being a selectee. He won't have to go through the secondary screening process um, that he currently may have to go through, that, like what you just described. So um, that's really the, the heart and soul of what Secure Flight is trying to do.
1: So would Secure Flight, would that be when I make my reservation, that that's when there would be that, look, you know, looking to see if there's a match or not at, at the point of when I make that reservation? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So would I not be able to make that reservation if there was some, you know, concern? No. I, I think when you go to make the reservation, the information is sent uh, to TSA where it's matched against the watch list and then transmitted back.
3: So um, you shouldn't have a problem because if if there is a potential match, then it it would be cleared up within TSA before a result is sent back.
1: Okay. So what if there was a mistake, which, you know, things happen like that. For example, credit reports have, you know, 70% of credit reports have errors, and we know there's, you know, tons of errors in choice points and all these other things. What if there's an error? Would I not know until I get to the airport? Um, if it cannot be cleared up, right, then um,
3: you might you might have to undergo secondary screening at the airport. That part has not been fully defined.
1: Okay.
2: Okay.
3: Because the program is still in development.
1: All right. So um, you tried this at uh, some of the airports this last year? No, no, no. This this is not at any airport now. This is listed oh. internally. Oh, I see. Okay. So, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the security benefits of, of Secure Flight. Well, the security benefits are um,
3: minimum number of data elements. Uh, like I said earlier, name and date of birth, or whatever the the, the final outcome is. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, we're looking at name and date of birth. Um, so, the passenger would have to provide maybe two data elements as opposed to a, a larger number. Um, it would be sent securely to TSA matched against the watch list, and the the, uh, result returned to the carrier. So from a privacy standpoint, it's the minimum number of data elements that are being collected, so we're not collecting a lot of personal information on passengers. We're vetting it um, against watch lists, essentially bouncing it against watch lists, returning a result to the carrier. Um, The security benefit is that those lists, containing uh, names of people who are on lists um, or have name matches to people on the list are no longer at the carrier level. Um, mm-hmm. They're here at TSA where they're secured um, as opposed
2: to at the carrier.
1: So will that mean anything different when we get to the airport? Will it be faster is, or or will there be something that, you know, we can feel more safe? Or what what other kind of benefits will we see when we get to the airport?
2: Uh, You
3: shouldn't, the passengers shouldn't see any difference. Okay. Um, If anything, it should be fewer people having to undergo secondary screening.
1: I see. I see. Okay. So will the secure flight be used to find criminals or besides what we might consider terrorists? is Is there any other use that you're planning on using this for?
3: No, we've been asked that question before, and people are, um, you know, had concerns that we might be looking for or checking immigration status or criminal histories, and we're not doing that with Secure Flight. We're simply matching name and date of birth against um, the consolidated government watch list.
1: Okay. So will you be using uh, commercial databases um, with this? How are you going to be doing that?
3: No, we will not be using commercial data, um, at least for the operational testing phase. Um, And uh, so that's the short and direct answer to the question. We won't be using it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, Let's talk a little bit about um, how will this passenger pre-screen process work then? Um, in terms of oh you, you already explained that it's just it goes through the carrier to you but it doesn't really make any difference at the airport except maybe to have fewer of those that are that are pulled out of line.
3: Yeah, so what we're hoping is through this program um, that people who are unable to use the kiosks now because they have a name similarity to someone on a selectee list won't have that problem under secure flight. I see. Okay.
1: So so how well. Tell me, how long will that information be held? Um, is it, like, as soon as the flight is over, does the, does the flight information go away, or does it, is it held in a database for future use? Or how is that going to work? Are you talking about passenger information? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, no, it will be held until, um, I think what we're looking at right now is about
3: 72 hours after the final leg of Uh, Of the trip, so if you've been traveling for a week, we'll dispose of the data um, seventy-two hours after you've completed that last leg of the flight.
1: All right. So, um, who will this database be shared with? Anybody besides TSA? Um,
3: Um, No. What what we're going to be doing is um, publishing a Privacy Act System of Records Notice, which will allow um, the public to um, comment and give feedback to TSA that notice will contain um, who the information will be shared with. Um, for example, if a, if a passenger has a, has a problem and is unable to use the kiosk and is repeatedly inconvenienced at the airport, sometimes that person will write um, his or her senator or congressman, and that congressman will in um, turn write to TSA on behalf of that constituent saying, you know, could you please clear up this problem for this individual? Um, in cases like that, um, we would share the information, not all the, all the where the person had been and all the travel history of this person, but um, be able to share back with the congressman, we've been able to clear it up or we have not been able to clear it up. Um, and we wouldn't even tell the reason. I think we would just say uh, we're not able to clear it. Um, we stand by our initial determination. If the individual uh, really believes that... TSA has made a mistake, then they can appeal um, our, our initial determination. So, so we really will not be giving out people's information except to individuals who write to us on their own behalf or by proxy. So um, it is very limited, and um, like I said, in the system of records notice, it will outline who we would share it with. Um, in some cases, we would share it with uh, those holders of the um, of the watch list but. Those would only be in limited circumstances where someone is a match that we can't resolve and we need that agency to resolve it for us. Right. Um, so it, it is very limited. And like I said, um, people reading the notice will have the ability to, to write to TSA and comment after the notice has been published and say um, whether they agree or disagree or raise, raise arguments.
1: Right. So, Lisa, would, would someone have an opportunity that – um, if they were on uh, a list and they were told that they couldn't get it cleared up and they went to their senator and they couldn't get it cleared up, would they have a right to, to get the file and, and show that it's wrong or something? Okay.
3: Uh, yes. They could write to us um, under the Privacy Act or submit a FOIA request right. for the information, the passenger information that we have, um, and be able to, uh, and, and, of course, we'd share that
1: with them. All right. Um, let's let's go on to and tell me a little bit, Lisa, about this this new registered travel um, program that that is going to be handled by you know commercial agencies. I, I noticed on your website you have here about the uh, elements of the registered travel program. Can you explain a little bit about that to us? Um, You had mentioned uh, benefits
3: under secure flight, and and like I said, there aren't really any benefits uh, to the passenger that will be noticeable. Um, But Registered Traveler is a a passenger benefit program, and um, the the commercial side of it, uh, turning it over to the private sector um, or private sector involvement, is something that is in the future. Um, We tested in 2004 and 2005, we tested five pilots, under the registered traveler in five different airports um, domestically and what registered traveler does first of all it's a voluntary program people can submit biographic and biometric data to tsa um, undergo security threat assessment and any other check that that um, is appropriate um, that meets the criteria for becoming a registered traveler and acceptance into the program And the benefit to the traveler is when they go to the airport, they can um, uh, slide that card into a kiosk, match the biometric um, uh, that's on the card with fingerprint or iris scan or whichever, uh, and then be able to go through the lines, the security checkpoint lines, a lot faster than what you normally have to go through. Um, So that's, that's sort of the benefit of the program. Um, right now, we are looking at other benefits, um, other ways to make the program more robust, and um, and so we're we're taking all kinds of feedback from from the public and from industry um, as to what those benefits might be.
1: We're speaking tonight with Lisa Dean, who is the senior privacy officer for the Transportation Security Administration, and she's joined us all the way from the East Coast, and we're so thrilled to have her, Lisa. I have another couple questions about this registered travel um, program. So you're going I, I thought I read on the website that they're going to be using fingerprints as their biometric information. Is that correct or is that, they okay, yes, that that's correct. Uh, and for the pilots,
3: we used um, both fingerprint and iris scan. Um, but I think so far the decision has been made that uh, fingerprint is a is a much better biometric.
1: okay, so, so let's say I wanted to join this program. I would. Um, how, how would I do it? How, how exactly would this happen?
3: If you wanted to join Registry Traveler, um, well, you would um, apply. I think you can either apply at the airport or through TSA. Uh, not right now. It's not. It's not an active program right, right now. We right.
1: Right. Isn't it June out? or something? It's starting up in June of this year. Um, yeah, somewhere
3: within spring or summer. Yeah, I don't know that a hard deadline is then.
1: Okay. But let's, let's say this summer, summer, sometime coming up this year. Okay. You, yes. Okay.
3: Yes. Yeah, I think, it, I think it is June.
1: Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. So, so kind of walk me through. And I know you don't have all the kinks out, but kind of give me an idea of what I would do if I wanted to join this program. Yeah.
3: Oh, like I said, you would either sign up at an airport or at
1: TSA, through TSA, um, and
3: submit your biometric and um, biographic data. CSA would conduct a security threat assessment, um, and like I said, any other tech that uh, might be appropriate that would match that would um, meet the criteria for acceptance in the program.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Once the person is accepted, they'd get their Registered Traveler card uh, containing the um, biometric. And, again, that part has not been worked out, um, to my knowledge, whether the, um, the biometric would be contained uh, on the card. I, I believe it will be, but I'm... Um, yeah yeah, I believe it will be actually. Um, so um, and once they receive that card, um, they ought to be able to use start using the kiosks in um, what we hope to be a major airport um, throughout the country. And it would be a domestic program.
1: Yeah. one of the concerns that that I have about um, having the biometric information on the card, is that what if the card is stolen? I mean, is there going to be a place also for me to do a live scan of my fingerprints as I go buy some some kiosk, or is the kiosk going to have a place that they're going to actually see my own fingerprints and see if it matches that of the card and that which is in your database, or how how would that work? No, I think
3: if, if your card is ever stolen, you'd call TSA and let us know right away. Um, we deactivate the card and issue another one, just just similar to a credit card. Right. Um, you wouldn't be able to uh, go to a kiosk without your card and and put in your biometric or, or match your fingerprint to the um, to the kiosk and be able to go through. You, you'd need the card because it's a one to one match.
1: Right. Well, that's a concern that I'd like to say because you know I deal with people with our, who are victims of identity theft all the time, and their cards are stolen, their their badges for work are stolen, and then people can get into work. In a, in a secure place, so that's a little dangerous, enough to have your actual fingerprint taken at the airport to see if you truly are the match that's in your database. No, so no, no.
3: You, you. I think maybe I misspoke. When you, when you arrive at the airport and you use the kiosk, your fingerprint. You would put your fingerprint. On the kiosk, at the same time you're reading yeah. your card, I see. so there is a one-to-one match. Oh, the to see if that
1: matches, and then that would see if it matches what you have in your database. Exactly. I see. Okay. Well, that's a little less scary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you think so. Yeah. No, I mean, really, because I I, I get so concerned because we have so much, you know, uh, credit card fraud and, and so much fraud and identity theft, mm-hmm. and and the other thing I, I worry about is what about um, people who apply and use somebody uh, like an identity takeover? Mm -hmm. What if somebody wanted to say that they're, you know, Lisa Dean and they apply and you haven't applied to be in the registered program or I haven't applied and somebody applies in my name and establishes this card and this identity in my name but with with other fingerprints? uh, Yes.
2: Yeah, and it,
3: that, you raise a very good point. Uh, I'm glad you did too, because I wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have occurred to me when you're dealing with with programs so closely. Sometimes you know, some of the obvious things um, escape you and, until someone mentions it, and this is one of those things. Um, identity theft, identity fraud are um, issues that is front and center on TSA's um, radar screen. Mm. Um, we're looking as we develop these programs. Uh, very, uh, we are always conscious of the fact that in developing cards, whether it's a TWIC card um, or registered traveler card, of uh, the possibility that someone could, could steal someone's identity or pretend to be someone else as they're registering for the program. And so um, for registered traveler, we are looking at um, ID authentication at the enrollment. Um, so in the event that someone is pretending or, or portraying himself or herself as someone other than who the real person is,
1: right. um, we would know that
3: before we actually
2: accepted them into the program.
1: Right, because that's kind of the worrisome. I mean, when we think yeah. about 9-11, which is what is foremost on your mind to protect people when they're flying, um, we know that over half of the uh, 9-11 terrorists had total identity takeover. And and, and 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 they did commit uh, fraud. So that's what my concern is, that we're going to, you know, go through all of this and then really have this, this big loophole where, you know, the bad guys can get on. And obviously what you're trying to do is really make it secure for all of us to feel safe when we're flying. That,
3: that's right. And, yeah, and, and like I said, um, these issues of identity theft, identity fraud um, are really – the, one of the reasons why we are so deliberate in, in taking our time and thinking through every step of the process as we're developing these programs to make sure that that um, anyone who does have
1: um, uh, bad intentions or right. um, you know it doesn't doesn't succeed. Right, right. No, I mean, the task that you guys have right now, I, my goodness, my heart goes out to you because it is such a challenge to deal with all this information and make sure that the people that you're tra- – and we just got back from, from traveling out of the country. And, you know, to be honest with you, I was a little bit scared about a couple of the people that were sitting there uh, near us and, and uh, was un- uncomfortable because when you think about what we might be doing here, what what about what they're going to be doing – um, traveling, how, are, how is TSA going to help us when you're coming from an airport outside this country? Well, um, see, I for,
3: one thing I forgot to mention earlier is that Secure Flight is a domestic program. Right. Um, Customs and Border Protection, another component within Homeland Security, handles international flights, and so uh, all the vetting of, um, of international passengers and international flights uh, take place through CBP uh, as opposed to TSA.
1: Right, right. So that's that's kind of worrisome when people, you know, when you're coming in, you know, coming back from from Mexico, we came into Los Angeles, and uh, you know, I just didn't feel as safe coming in with the kinds of uh, checks that we have maybe going out of the country. You know what I mean? So that's that's a concern too. Yeah, um, although CBP's program is pretty
3: robust, um, and uh, I would I would feel pretty safe if they were. Um, if, they're, if they're, they're taking care of international flights the way we will take care of domestic flights.
1: Right, right. So so in terms of this registered traveler, um, I saw that you're going to be having commercial entities really pro- uh, collaborate with TSA, correct? Um, that is, that's the thinking right now. Um, nothing has been
3: firmly decided. So I, I can't really say with any kind of... of um, definite, uh, you know, definitiveness, I guess, like, yeah. uh, that this is what we're going to do.
1: Right. Now, I was just thinking about when I was reading from the uh, January 20th press release from TSA, they were just talking about smart card technology is used will be used to store the fingerprint biometrics, and it talked about um, the fact that these technologies will really kind of be uh, farmed out to the, to the private sector and, you know, that they would work kind of uh, in tandem with TSA to develop these programs, which I can understand because, obviously, it's, it's expensive to, to do this registered traveler program. I mean, isn't it? I mean, if, if, if the government doesn't, even, I don't know how much of a budget you guys have to be able to do something like this. Yeah, it, it, it is a program. It's, it's a very complex program, as most of our programs are.
3: Um, to the extent that industry can be helpful, and I think um, you know, our thinking is industry is helpful in coming up with more, um, in coming up with unique ideas or um, innovative ways of, of handling uh, certain aspects of these programs, such as um, ID authentication or enrollment, or you know, um, even the kiosks and things like that, um, and benefits to the program. Uh, we encourage industry to uh, to share their ideas with us.
1: Right. What about the, would you be, in terms of those background checks, how to become a registered um, traveler, you would do some background checks as well, and what would that entail?
3: Uh, I don't know that that process has been finalized. Uh, I know that that, um, that applicants would undergo a security threat assessment for registered traveler. Uh, they would submit a biometric um, for perhaps a criminal history record check, um, and I'm not sure any other, of any other check that they would go through um, right now. That's not to say that, they, that we wouldn't conduct another check uh, or any additional checks, but um, I don't know that that's been finalized.
1: One of the concerns that that um, I think comes up with regard to uh, this private-public venture, I mean, is with regard to the accuracy of some of these commercial databases. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, I know ChoicePoint uh, is used by law enforcement quite a bit, and right now I have a client who is a victim of identity theft in which. The databases show him as a felon, but when I went back to the actual criminal records in New York, he was, the, he was the alias. He was the victim of identity theft instead of the criminal. However, the databases show him as the actual felon. So that is a concern that I have in terms of using um, databases like Axiom or ChoicePoint or LexisNexis, which are huge companies, that that do work uh, collaboratively with government and for some very good things, mm-hmm. but I'm just concerned about looking at that as an accurate um, an accurate background check. When in fact, most quite a bit of the time, there's a lot of uh, errors in those. Well, I'm not I'm not sure about.
3: Um, quite a bit of the time. I, I know that, I, you know, it is a concern internally about data accuracy, uh, and it's something that we discuss and uh, we have talked to a number of the commercial data providers who have said, um, and, and quite rightly, it's our business to make sure that the data is accurate. Otherwise, uh, what good is our service? Um, so that's one aspect of it, and, and not to take their word for it. Um, mistakes are often made, and i um, even on the government side, which is why, you know, TSA's answer to that right now is establishing a, a redress office, and, and we have done that. It's the Office of Transportation Security Redress, and it's agency-wide. So regardless of what program you're participating in with TSA, um, the redress office is there to um, to assist you. So if, for example, a data aggregator um, does have you misidentified, um, TSA can often, uh, will, would be able to um, help through its redress office to make sure that any misidentification is cleared up at that end. Uh, if there's um, an inaccuracy on the government side, again, the redress office would be equipped to take care of, of that problem as well. So, that's that's the immediate solution that we can find. Um, and again, we continue to debate the, the use of commercial data, um, but nonetheless, I, I think that there is uh, there is value to um, making sure that the, the there is an ID authentication piece um, before just doing a a security threat assessment on somebody and then coming back and saying, actually, you know, we don't think you're a very uh, um, Safe person, and we don't know we want you. We want you boarding a plane, but it turned out it could be completely wrong, and that person's been inconvenienced. So if we can do anything, take any step to eliminate inconvenience to the person, and um, and again, you know, TSA is customer focused. So we look at each passenger, each participant in programs as someone that we are responsible for in terms of uh, making sure that we serve them well. Um, if we can add any piece on. Uh, to any of our programs that would do that, then then we certainly are are looking very
2: closely at it.
1: Right. and And right now in Congress, we are trying to deal with the issue of accuracy of data brokers anyway. So this is a right. real good reason, you know, so that if you are going to be using their databases, we want to make sure that I would think that, you know, maybe <laughs> – maybe you guys would help support us in asking that, that there be, you know, the fair information uh, practices for uh, data brokers like we have with the, you know, Fair Credit Reporting Act, because right now, you know, I don't have a, a right to basically go and see my entire profile with ChoicePoint Lexis, or LexisNexis or Axiom. If I did and I could correct it and then you used it, then you're more likely to get um, more accuracy because there's, you know, there's some chance for me to review it and make sure it's correct in there. Yeah, you
3: know, I remember that a couple of years ago, um, before I came to TSA, and I'm still with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, so in the advocacy world, um, we, there was a, either legislation or at least a, the idea that was circulating of allowing people to get sort of like their, um, their personal information report. Um, every year, from from various agencies or, or, I guess, commercial entities that would have had it, and um, I'm glad to see that still out there because I think that um, you know, from just from a, a personal standpoint, you know, people ought to people. The last thing you want is to be uh, is, is for misinformation. To be there um, and, and share
1: you know... yeah <laughs> Sorry. and then, and then shared with other a- agencies, yes yeah, right? yeah.
2: Uh-huh.
1: now um what what ended up happening a couple several years ago, they had the individual reference services that the Federal Trade Commission had made a kind of a collaborative approach where they said, okay, we, we won't push for legislation. You kind of can, can uh, self-regulate, and that didn't work. And then after the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act, they did pass a law that once a year, for example, you can get your choice points, not your whole profile, but your work history profile mm-hmm. and your insurance history profile and your landlord tenant. So that you can give once a year for free at choicepoint.com. But the entire profile, like what you see in, you know, with all your public records and other you know, data that they pull together for a background check, mm-hmm. you don't have a right to see that whole profile right now. And that's what uh, actually is being debated right now in Congress in terms of oversight for the information broker industry and also for uh, fair information principles so that we can at least see it correct it, you know, have access to it. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that that would be helpful because I think it would also make it more accurate for uh, agencies like yours that are going to use it for good reasons to, to see who's really out there trying to get on these airplanes. That's right. Now, is this just for, for commercial entities, or is this for government agencies as well? Well, right now they're, what they're talking about is government, I'm sorry, they're talking about the data brokers, of Okay, yes. data, data aggregators, and the big ones, as you know, are like ChoicePoint, LexisNexis, Axiom, but then there's literally thousands of information brokers on the Internet. I mean, if you just okay. type in background check, you're going to see it. So, you know, when I hear that, and I've had so many people that contact me that say, my gosh, I have a background check that says that you know I was arrested for murder, and I haven't even been in that state. You know? mm-hmm. so, yeah. So that's the kind of stuff that really you know scares me. Hearing from these victims who are are just overwhelmed with trying to get some accurate records, and if they can't see the record until they're denied a job or they're denied getting on an airplane, then then that's a real problem. Sure. Yeah. And and you know the government agencies.
3: There's the benefit of the Privacy Act, which um, allows people access to to their records and um, that's that's um, you know, that's sort of the the benefit to to uh, passengers or anybody um, you know the public on the uh, on the government side
1: right and you were talking before about uh, the Freedom of information act mm-hmm. so um if if someone is having a problem. With getting on an, on a plane and they seem to be stopped all the time, no matter what, um, then your suggestion would be is to go through the appeal process uh, with your office, and then if if they can't get it resolved to to ask for a disclosure through the Freedom of Information Act to see what it is that's really causing the problem. Well, I would um, they should actually contact our redress office.
3: Um, and the redress office would be able to um, help them through. Uh, through once they've filled out the passenger identity verification form and and uh, uh, and so forth, and and be able to guide them through that process and hopefully take care of their problem. Um, Freedom of Information Act is um, or privacy. When people uh, request their information under the Privacy Act, generally they want to know what does the agency have on them. Um, in other words, you have my passenger history. I want to see it. Uh-huh. Um, if someone is um, experiencing difficulty at the airport in being able to use a kiosk or, or having to undergo secondary screening all the time, generally that's a, that's a watch list um, problem. So what they need to do is contact the redress office, and, and the people at the redress office will be able to, like I said, take care of the problem for them in, in most cases. So So that that would be my advice is to contact the redress office.
1: Okay. And that is at 866-289-9673? That's right. Okay. So let me ask you a little bit more. You were talking before about you have, um, within TSA, several redress offices, or is it one redress office for all concerns? It's one redress
3: office that will service all uh, applicants for progr- for all TSA programs. So whether uh, the individual is a hazmat driver or a registered traveler or a passenger undergoing secondary screening, the redress office is the central location for that um, individual to contact, uh, to say, I'm having a problem, can you help me?
1: Okay. So, so what other programs do you have over there? I know you are so busy over <laughs> here. Yeah, yeah, how <what laughs> time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> okay. What are some of the other programs that you've got? Well, we have uh,
3: hazmat um, for people, for individuals who are um, CDL drivers um, with hazmat endorsements. We. Yeah, I'm going to I
1: mean, step you say, you'll tell people what what you're talking about because most. You know, remember we're here in Orange County, California. People are on, on drive yeah. time and we're on the University campus. So, well, don't, don't you know? in DC. We all speak. We all speak in acronyms here. You know? I, know,
0: I
3: know. <laughs> So, CDL is a uh, commercial driver's license. Okay. So, individuals, uh, truck drivers mostly, um, who uh, carry um, hazardous materials. Okay. Um, truck drivers have uh, commercial driver's licenses. Those who carry, who are authorized to carry hazardous materials, have a HAZMAT endorsement from TSA, okay.
2: uh, which is a
3: certification in addition to their, their uh, commercial driver's license saying you are authorized to, um, to carry uh, hazardous materials. Oh, Okay. okay. So what we do is we conduct security threat assessments on those individuals um, who are applying for or who already hold a hazmat endorsement, um, saying that, yes, we we certify you to to be able to um, transport hazardous materials.
2: Hmm.
3: Okay. So that's one program. Um, Right. We we also do the vetting program for flight crew, Hmm. Um, uh, anyone applying for um, flight school. Um, people who are flying chartered planes, uh, in and out of Reagan National Airport. Um, and, uh, let's see, we have the, uh, transportation worker identification, uh, credential, which is, a, a, in pilot, it's not, it hasn't been implemented yet. Um, that's similar to HAZMAT, but a, a, um, a more thorough, uh, background check. And, um. And so on and so on and so on. So airport workers, people who have access to sterile areas um, who work in airports, um, we generally do background checks and uh, security threat assessments. So it's, it's pretty extensive. So the whole, yeah. we're responsible for the entire transportation. Uh, transportation Security Administration doesn't just mean airports. Um, right. It's been our, um, uh, our focus. Uh, because of 9-11, but now we are uh, beginning to balance it out and branch out more into other areas of transportation, such as rail and um, cargo and um, uh maritime and so forth so.
1: right that's what we we're just going to ask you lloyd just wrote me a note ask her about the waterways what you do you <laughs> think? Well, we have a boat so you know we, we always wonder about the waterways so so what does tsa do about the waterways you know that's, that's kind of scary thinking people can come in to you know from canada or mexico or from you know the caribbean or so what kind of things what kind of programs do you have for that Um,
3: Right now, we are developing those programs, so um, it's not at this point even at a stage where I can comment. Um, But like I said, our focus has been aviation since 9-11, and we're now branching out into other modes of transportation, so... Um, those programs, uh, you know, if you ever have me back, we'll, we'll talk more about those programs
1: in the future. <laughs> Lisa, you have had to really jump on board with both feet, huh, since uh, March of 2004. That's right, yes. Oh, it's, been, it's been an education, and it continues to be an ed- education every day because you um,
3: learn. Um, it's amazing how much there is to learn, how detailed programs are, um, and the privacy focus that has to be there um, for every program along the way is just is amazing. It, it's, I, I, it's hard to explain, really, but it's been, it's been great.
1: Because you have to collect so much data, and a lot of that data is sensitive information, you know, about really who that person is and making sure who that person is and doing background checks. So how many people are in your department?
3: Well, Homeland Security has um, 180 200 thousand um, employees. TSA right. is probably at uh, 50 thousand, um, and that's throughout the field. That would include screeners and or Transportation yeah. Security officers. And
1: no, I meant within people. within your Privacy Office. Within the Privacy Office, the, the Privacy Office is
3: very small here. Um, we're about to add on uh, a staff, which is nice. Because um, we can always use the help, but uh, right now it's it's in the single digits.
2: Right. Yes. That's rough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's well, it, 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 the DHS uh,
3: or Homeland Security's Privacy Office has been a great help. They've been a great backup um, and a good resource uh, for me when i when I've needed extra help. And um, and then there's uh, you know other components within Homeland Security have privacy officers, and so there's sort of a camaraderie between us. Um, where we can bounce ideas off each other and, and uh, uh, you know find out you know, what they did in this particular circumstance that might be helpful to us and so forth. So,
1: I know that the <laughs> Homeland Security Office has a uh, like a, a committee, a privacy committee that that kind of advises. Them. Do they work with you as well, or do uh, you have your own separate kind of commission? Well, the, the committee. Um,
2: you,
3: you mean the Data Privacy and Integrity? Advisories?
1: Yeah, the advisory board, yes.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been very helpful with Secure Flight uh, and providing feedback, and we, we go back to them and we'll continue to go back to them um, as the program develops and, and get more um, feedback and, and advice along the way. Uh, the DHS Privacy Office will be very helpful um, in, in program development and um, as we move into operational testing.
2: so. Um, it, it,
3: privacy is, like I said, front and center on the radar screen. It's not something that is looked upon as after a program has been developed. I, I really want to stress how uh, focused the program offices are, how our Assistant Secretary, Kit Hawley, is focused on privacy as a foundational element to all programs within the agency. So privacy does not go unnoticed. And um, so that, that, has been, uh, that has made the job a lot easier.
1: Well, you know, I noticed, Lisa, that the um, website that you have is very uh, consumer-oriented to, to help people understand, and I was really impressed with that. Oh, thank so you. So what, what kinds of things should we be looking for? Because I think the people who are listening to the show are, are educated people. They're university students. They, you know, this kind of thing is important to them. So what kinds of things should we look for uh, when we're on our on your website to, to really educate ourselves as to what's going on? Well, um, our... The, the
3: main um, thing, of course, for me um, as privacy officer is the privacy impact assessments that we conduct um, on each of our programs before we implement them. Um, those um, uh, PIAs, as we call them, another acronym.
1: Well, thank um, you for giving us that. What <laughs> <laughs> um, it means?
3: Detail the purpose for each program, our authority for conducting the programs, um, as well as how the programs have been developed to include privacy along the way, so the decisions that we've made um, in terms of system architecture and design, uh, data elements that are used, uh, have all been decided along the way and outlined in that Privacy Impact Assessment to show the public, one, that we really have um, given a thoughtful approach to development of these programs from a privacy focus and also um, the decisions that we made in, as a privacy enhancer along the way. Um, so the, those documents can be
2: very useful.
1: So, Lisa, you, you know, I know because you come from EFF, you come from a privacy perspective, you come from someone who, who values these uh, privacy uh, fair principles, um, so do, basically, when a new program comes up, this, this comes through your office so that you get to say your your piece about the concerns that you have. Uh, yes, yes.
3: Program offices are very um, responsive and receptive to feedback from the privacy office here, um, and uh, any they they generally um, will come and say, "We have this program we want to develop. We need input." and um, it's never just one office that has feedback or, or can give feedback or make input. It's, it's generally a, a committee within the federal government. Right. federal agencies are never, um, you know, nobody ever does anything by themselves. But, um, yes, program offices are, are um, pretty much in lockstep with our office and vice versa in development of programs. So it's, they've been great.
1: So basically, what you're telling me is that, from your perspective, you guys are really trying to be proactive about taking measures um, to protect privacy yeah. of our travelers. Absolutely.
3: Um, you know, that privacy, as as our, like I said, our Assistant Secretary Kip Hawley has said, in, in not only in testimony but says it internally to employees, privacy is a foundational element to all of our programs and has to be um, considered, taken seriously, and, and developed. Along the way, so I'm actually surprised in, when when I go out and I listen to people, either from other agencies or from the private sector, and um, come back thinking we really are advanced at TSA. And I know we take a lot of hits from the public, and, and you know, and sometimes we make mistakes and we deserve to be told about it. But mm-hmm. um, for the most part, we are. We continue to try. I think we have. Um, we've made a lot of headway. And uh, we, we just um, we just uh, continue on our on our way um, with uh, privacy as a focus.
1: Well, you have really been helpful to us today to understand a little bit more about what what happens with the watch list and the no fly list, and um, I'm going to be able to tell my neighbor exactly what to do. And, and if we have a problem, we're going to call you, Lisa. <laughs> I hope you do. I hope You do.
3: You know, I'd like to give um, I, I'd like to give my email address. Um, to sure. anybody who's interested in, and if they have any questions about privacy at TSA or, or any of our programs, sure you can certainly contact me. Um, which is um, TSA Privacy at DHS.gov.
1: Very good.
3: And that comes directly to me, and I, I'd be more than happy to uh, answer questions.
1: We also want to give out the website that has all that great information at TSA.gov, right? I know the one I had was TSA.gov forward slash public. That's what I. That's the one I was on. Yeah, I think if
3: TSA.gov is just fine.
1: Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. And when you get the maritime stuff up and all the other stuff, I want you to come back and tell us more. Oh, I'd love to. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Lisa Dean, who is the senior privacy officer with the Transportation Security Administration, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security. And we're thrilled that she joined us all the way from the East Coast. And we hope that you will listen uh, next week to Privacy Piracy from 5 to 6 p.m. And you are listening to KUCI.org, 88.9 FM in Irvine, and KUCI.org um, on the Internet. Also, if you want to learn more about our guests and listen to previous interviews and also download for your podcasting, um, we now have podcast all of our radio interviews so you may go to heyUCI.org privacypiracy forward slash privacy piracy and stay tuned for uh, right after this show you can listen to neopolitan music with Jessabine and Marina. Thanks for joining us and thank you Lloyd for being our great engineer
2: not reflect the Darling, you say you want to write a book? Well, then you must
1: listen to writers on writing, darling. Authors, literary agents, gabbing and babbling about the art
2: and the business of writing.
1: Thursday, 5 p.m.
2: Darling, you must follow Marco to your host. Yeah, listen, darling.
0: Hi, this is James, host of Between the Lions, inviting you to listen to what's new in experimental and ambient music. Join me most Thursdays from 6 to 8 p.m. Only on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org.